You're listening to the New Life Church Sunday Morning Podcast. We're a family of believers in Anderson, Missouri, that want to experience God in a real way, both inside and outside the walls of a building. For more Sunday messages, upcoming events, or to get in touch, visit new-life-church.net. Before Theodore Seuss Geisel, also known as Dr. Seuss, convinced generations of children that a wocket might just be in their pocket, he was the chief editorial cartoonist for the New York newspaper PM from 1940 to 1948. During his tenure, he cranked out some 400 cartoons that, among other things, praised Franklin D. Roosevelt's policies, chided isolationists like Charles Lindbergh, supported civil rights for blacks and Jews. He also staunchly supported America's war effort. To that end, Dr. Struess drew many cartoons that to today's eyes are breathtakingly racist. While many of his cartoons would depict the Nazis, including Adolf Hitler, as arrogant and misinformed, or a great nation gone mad, he would draw the Japanese with squinty, slanted eyes, pig noses, and at times depicting them even as alley cats. Overall, casting all of the Japanese people, from the emperor to the person on the street, as a unified, brutal monolith including the Japanese-Americans who were citizens in the United States, even if they were born here. In 1953, however, Dr. Seuss visited Japan where he met and talked with its people and witnessed the horrific, the horrific aftermath of the bombing of Hiroshima. He soon started to rethink his anti-Japanese position. And passion. So he issued an apology through a children's book he wrote in true Dr. Seuss fashion. Some of you probably even already know the name of the book, Horton Hears a Who. Published in 1954 about an elephant that had to protect a speck of dust populated by little tiny people There was a movie made about it not long ago as well. The book's hopeful, inclusive refrain, repeated over and over, almost signifying his heart and change of heart towards the Japanese, says this, a person is a person, no matter how small. He even dedicated that book to my great friend, Mitsuji Nakamaru of Kyoto, Japan. I took this adapted article from openculture.com. I learned something new about him. Maybe you did too this morning. But A Horton Hears a Who, a children's book, was how Dr. Seuss chose to apologize to the Japanese people. And in doing so, and through many other children's books, he conveyed his change in his heart and his viewpoint towards them. Now, we don't have the privilege of interviewing him to know exactly the reasons and 
go into all of that, but we can take some educated guesses along the way. We could speculate that his anti-Japanese sentiments were because of the bombing of Pearl Harbor and how they attacked us first. Or perhaps he even had family or friends located there in Pearl Harbor that were killed or affected by that bombing. And then we could continue on in our speculation that he changed his mind because he went. And instead of keeping himself at an uneducated distance from them, he chose to engage. He chose to meet them and see them and realize that they too were people just like him. They too have the same wants and needs and desires that he had. But without speculation, we can be 100% certain that the core issue for his choice of being anti-Japanese was the same core issue that we all have that keeps us from being truly, holistically pro-life like we talked about last week, and that is sin. Scripture makes it very plain to us and clear that our nature is corrupted by sin, and we see that in the first couple chapters of the Bible, Genesis 3. We see it again in Psalm 51. We see it in Romans 7 and throughout Scripture. Sin corrupts us to be pro-self and anti-God. And to be pro-self equals being anti-life at least anti-life outside of ourselves. Now, education and intentionality can help resolve these surface issues. For example, understanding that human life begins at conception per the word of God. We see that in Job 33, Psalm 139, Isaiah 44, Jeremiah 1. Would help us give more value to the unborn. Or recognizing that we are all one race in God's eyes. Adam and Eve began it all in Genesis 1. There was no splits in race in the history or genealogy of mankind. Or that the very root of every decision to not be holistically pro-life is our sin, our pride, our selfishness. James 4 makes that abundantly clear. But only Christ can resolve that core issue of our sin nature. So before we continue on this morning's message on how to be practically pro-life, let's review what it meant to be holistically pro-life from last week, to reestablish our foundation that we're working off of here. To be holistically pro-life is to believe and act and to promote the value and needs of all human beings. As it has been said, from the womb to the tomb, from the unborn, the born, regardless of size, location, development, dependency, color, culture, belief system, or their age. God is pro-life. The creator created life out of his love and out of his, for his glory. Out of love and for his glory. Not out of need or deficiency. And God, in creating life, created man and woman as image bearers to reflect the attributes of their creator. 
one of them being to be pro-life. He then commanded his created, the man and the woman, to be pro-life, one of the first commands he gave him, he gave human beings. But then we were corrupted by sin. So what we do is not what we are created and designed to do. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of being pro-life. Though we may have cursed God's image bearers at one time or another on the road or at the grocery store or over the phone or in person, Jesus was cursed so we would not be eternally cursed. Though we may have been mocked or made fun of others or had it done to us, Jesus was mocked and ridiculed on all of our behalf so that we might know eternal life without shame or embarrassment. Though we may have oppressed or discriminated against others and or have had this done to us, Jesus was oppressed and discriminated against so that we can one day, by his grace, totally and completely belong as a welcomed child of God in heaven. And though we have put ourselves above others, in fact, I would wager that we could all attest to that even today, in the short few hours we have been awake, Jesus put others first by going to the cross on our behalf. So as we can see from last week's message, the value of the human life, the human being, is not based on anything other than that God created us with value to represent his image for his glory and purpose. So let's now explore how we can be practically pro-life and as we do we'll we'll keep that dr seuss wordplay along for the ride a person is a person no matter their size location development or dependency let's start with size a person is a person no matter their size should the size of a human life determine its value is a full-grown adult more valuable than a child? Or is a smaller statured man or woman less valuable than a larger statured man or woman? Of course not. Yet this is an issue when it comes to the unborn. Then we should ask, what qualifies as someone being alive? The science of embryology is a study of this. In fact, 95% of biologists, that's all of the biologists, both biblically-based Christian biologists as well as secular biologists, affirm the biological view that a human's life begins at fertilization. At fertilization. Moreover, the youngest human embryo fulfills the four criteria needed to establish biological life. Metabolism, metabolic, I told you it's going to be one of those days. Metabolism, you know what I mean. <laughs> Sorry, Sam. My son's going to give me the word police report later. Uh, growth, reaction to, reaction to stimuli, and then reproduction. All four of those things are present at the beginning. So then one might also argue, when does this biological life technically become a person? So there's the study of personhood. Or when does it have a soul? 
Now, on this topic, science, ethics, philosophy, religious authorities all have variations of what defines it. Here's one expert, or one excerpt of a so-called expert's view on personhood in an article from Santa Clara University on ethics and personhood. According to this philosopher, Marianne Warren, the traits which are most central to the concept of personhood are very roughly, <laughs> she gives herself a little out there with very roughly, the following. Number one, consciousness, and in particular the capacity to feel pain, reasoning, the developed capacity to solve new and relatively complex problems. Number three, self-motivated activity, activity which is relatively independent of either genetic or direct external control. And fourth, the capacity to communicate by whatever means, messages of an indefinite variety of types. And then fifth, the presence of self-concepts or self-awareness. Now, there are several viewpoints, or there are several problems with this viewpoint, since there are those who are very much alive, but yet nerves do not allow them to feel pain. There are mental disabilities that keep some who are very much alive from solving problems. There are physical disabilities and accidents that can cause someone to be able to have self-motivated control and have issues with that. What about if somebody goes unconscious? Are they suddenly not a person anymore if they get knocked out or go into a coma? Other arguments range from the somewhat reasonable to unverifiable to the ridiculous. Only scripture can give us assurance for when the value and personhood of an embryo begins, and that's at conception. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, tell us this. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. Every single life that God creates has purpose and is formed and has a plan. Not to mention there's a host of other references indicating this throughout Scripture, both Old and New Testament, proclaiming the value and purpose of life from conception and in the womb. So if size were to determine the worth or value, what about babies that were born prematurely? Well, we have witnessed and can testify the value of their worth around here, can't we? The Osmonds, the Jacksons, just to name two of the recent couple of years. What about those born with dwarfism? Are they suddenly not of value? No. Other birth defects that affects one's size, even children subject to extreme abuse and neglect will be shorter and smaller in stature than others. Are they of less value? No. A person is a person no matter their size. What about location? A person is a person no matter their location. Should the physical location of a human determine its value or its worth? 
whether it be in the womb, whether they were born, or even where they currently live. Beginning with the unborn, again, should traveling eight inches down the birth canal determine whether someone has the right to live or not? What about fetal surgeries where they pull the baby out and operate and put the baby back in? Were they a person and then not a person? In the Old Testament, God established specific laws to protect the unborn. I love how God emphasizes the value of the unborn in these verses in Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 through 24. It says this, When men get in a fight and hit a pregnant woman so that her children are born prematurely, but there is no injury, the one who hit her must be fined as the woman's husband demands from him, and he must pay according to judicial assessment. There's not even a, hey, there's a cap on how much you should pay. It's how much he demands. And that's if the baby's okay, just born early. In verse 23, if there's an injury to the unborn, then you must give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, wound for wound. Is that not indicating that God sees those in the womb as equal, as important value as those outside of the womb. So what about those already born? We can not be holistically pro-life when it comes to that as well, as we talked about last week. Does value of the right to live vary between someone bound to a bed or a wheelchair versus one who can walk on their own two feet or compared to a triathlete? Is that triathlete more valuable than somebody who can't even run or walk? What about if they were born in another country, a third world country or an international superpower? What if that's where they were born or their location? What if their location of where they live is in a car or on the streets or in a mansion? Should the value of life vary between those variables? No, not at all. Deuteronomy 10, 18 through 19 says, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the resident alien. That means those who are in this country that were not born here. Giving him food and clothing. You are also to love the resident alien since you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. Did you know every single one of us is an alien to this world if we are a believer in Jesus Christ? How dare we treat anybody else with disdain or disrespect? I'm sorry, but I mean, unless you're American Indian, we're all immigrants and aliens here in this nation. Along with the previous scripture references, these Additional verses, again, I'm, I'm giving these to you to write down or to notice that I'm not just pulling one verse out of Scripture and out of context of the whole Scripture. I'm wanting to make a point. This is God's purpose and plan and is valuable throughout Genesis to Revelation. 
A person is a person no matter their size and a person is a person no matter their location. What about development? A person is a person no matter their development. Should this determine their right to live or be loved and cared for? An unborn baby is able to live and breathe with their lungs inside the womb filled with amniotic fluid. And on a side note, once we're born, we can't even survive more than a minute, or at least as long as it takes for one swallow of water in that same kind of environment. True, a baby requires the nutrients and oxygen and protection of the mother's womb, yet each year, medical advances. Babies are able to survive at earlier and earlier premature births. Through a Google research, and I don't know, Claire may know the exact if it is or not, but a baby in 2018, they believed to be the youngest ever to be born and live. She was only 23 weeks and three days old when she was born and weighed only 8.6 ounces. I visited Nolan in the hospital and Jackson in the hospital and they fit in two hands. And there was no question or doubt in any nurses or doctors' hearts or minds of their value or their parents' hearts or minds. And this baby, they said, fit in one hand. Half a pound. And still alive today, from what I could see. What about the level of development of the young? What about the elderly or those with disabilities? A two-year-old is clearly less developed than a 20-year-old. Is that two-year-old less significant or important than that 20-year-old? An 80-year-old might have failing health and disabilities, but that doesn't make them any less important or valuable than the 20-year-old or the 2-year-old. That 2-year-old is not able to reproduce or solve complex problems yet or contribute to society by volunteering or holding down a job. <laughs> but there's no question about their value in their life. What about those with developmental disabilities or other handicaps? They had no say in that. They had no choice in that. Is their life somehow less? And yet society and culture will frown more upon the abuse of a pet than how we treat other human beings. And I'm not saying that we should abuse pets. Not at all. God created them. We should take care of them. We should be good stewards of them. But when we spend the amount of money that some do and the care and the time and the intention and yet neglect these over here in our same community, I think our values are mixed up and upside down. Luke chapter 14, Jesus clearly talking here to his disciples and Pharisees and others listening about the value of those with disabilities or handicapped. 
He also said to the one who had invited him, When you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I shared with you a couple weeks back and it bears repeating Marcella's sister on her deathbed when I visited her before she passed was a woman who needed 24-7 care and her sisters did it because her life was worth it. They took shifts and they cared and they put her needs above their own until God gave her her last breath. And here is a woman in this place and I went and prayed for her and told her we would continue praying for her and, until she got to meet her Savior face to face. And she said, I will be praying for you too. To be prayed for by somebody in that condition, in that state, who's about to meet Jesus face to face is something that is just dumbfounding to me. Again, I've listed several references there for you to write down or consider. If the slides are going too fast, feel free to email me and I can send these to you if you need them for further study. A person is a person no matter their size or location and a person is a person no matter their development. What about dependency? A person is a person no matter their level of dependency. There's no argument when it comes to determining that an unborn baby is completely dependent upon its mother for his or her ability to survive, or even an infant for that matter, and even up to toddlers. Some might even say teenagers and husbands would fall into this as well. <laughs> However, should that determine whether or not those babies, born, unborn, toddlers, young children, even those Teenagers and husbands have the right to live or have value? Of course they do. Because I'm one of them. <laughs> and so are you. Neither should it matter for those who require care that are paraplegic, an amputee, an irreversible coma, elderly, less self-aware or mentally ill or unable to contribute to society as a whole. Galatians 6, verses 9 through 10 reminds us to not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. We should work to the good for all. A person is a person, no matter their size, no matter their location, their development, or dependency. I want to say it again like I did last week. In a room this size, I know there are people here who have made choices or have wounds that deal with pro-life, with how we have treated either the elderly or the unborn, 
decisions we have made. And as I prayed at the beginning, there is no sin greater than God's redeeming grace. He forgives. He redeems. He can make whole. I came across this quote from Matt Chandler, and I truly love it, and it ties in with what I just said. If we're claiming we're pro-life, yet doing nothing about it, we not only aren't truly understanding the gospel, we're not truly pro-life. And in that same section, Chandler also said this, and it's through the wound that we experience healing. Running from the wounds of grief, loss, pain, from choices or sin we've made, or any other kind of loss, is never going to grant the healing. But it's going through it. So we might claim we're pro-life with our words or our posts online, but are we really doing anything about it? Because if we're not, we're not really. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that it's the perfect fulfillment of being holistically and practically pro-life in our own hearts and lives first is where it's got to begin. And as that transforms us into what we do with it, how should this shape our mindset and inspire us to respond? When we consider the unborn and their helplessness, we should see ourselves Our salvation is 100% dependent upon Christ. We are helpless without him. When we see the orphan, we should see ourselves. As we too are like orphans without parents, without Christ. But he made a way. He made it possible for us to be adopted into God's family. By grace, through salvation in Christ. When we see a pregnant woman who sees no way out and feels trapped in her decision to think that an abortion will solve it, we should see ourselves. We should remind ourselves that sin handicaps us and it enslaves us and we too can be trapped by it without Christ. When we see the disabled, when we see the handicapped, we should see ourselves. Because without Christ, we are not whole. We are lacking. We are disabled. When we see the young children that need our care, our love, our assistance, our leaders in the classes to walk alongside the single parents trying to slug it out on their own. When we see the elderly that need more care and help from us because of the season of life they're in, we should see ourselves that we too are in need of help. God made us for community and he gave us a savior to unite us by his blood. 
when we see the refugee or the immigrant, yeah, we should see ourselves. Because this world is not our home. Our home is in the presence of Jesus Christ for all eternity one day when our time here is done. So we too should get over our fear and our prejudice, whatever it is that's holding us back, and love those that God brings into our lives as Christ has loved us long before we ever chose him. By grace, that we would respond in love. Not sure where to begin? Pray. Pray. Pray about being holistically and practically pro-life. Pray that God would show you how he is pro-life. And that he would change your heart to be like his. And then to respond as he shows you. It doesn't mean that we're all going to become lobbyists to Washington to change legislation or laws. It doesn't mean that we're all going to be the ones that are going to be working at CareNet and Neosho or choosing to foster and adopt. But what is our part? What can we do? Saturday night of our missions conference is going to basically be that theme from the womb to the tomb with several missionaries and organizations of ways that you can be involved from CareNet to Missouri Baptist Children's Home to Adult and Teen Challenge and more. If you want to know a good starting place, come. They'll give you all the opportunities to figure out what your role or place could be. We do have a song to respond in together again afterward, but let me close this in prayer. This is very close to God's heart. It is his heart. Therefore, it should be our heart. And anytime we open up his word or hear the gospel preached, we should realize that it's about being holistically pro-life, that Christ died so that none would perish. But how will they know if we don't tell them? How will they know if they don't see his transforming work in our lives, causing us to respond and reach out to others? Father, I confess that I am not holistically or practically pro-life. Only you are. But your mercy is more than my failures and my sin in this. As it is for everyone. Father, as you have shown us in your word this morning and last week, at your heart for life, 
the purpose and plan for each one. That in your eyes, a person is a person, no matter their size, no matter their location, no matter their development or dependency, because you made them that way. Our place is not to judge or determine if it's hard for us because of one of those factors being off. Our place is to trust you. As you tell us in 1 Corinthians 12.10, God, that it's in we are, when we are weak that you are strong. And so we openly admit that we are weak. Let your strength shine through, God. Let it go forth. Let us be your vessels, your hands, your feet, your voices. If it's in prayer and if it's in action and everything in between, that we do this not out of guilt or shame or obligation, but out of love for you because Because of you, Christ, you saved us. We were that helpless unborn. We were that handicapped and disabled. We were that immigrant and refugee. We were that orphan without you. And Father, if anybody is still here this morning that that is still in that place in their life because they don't know you personally, God, I ask that they would wait no longer. They would choose you this day. They would choose to trust and believe in you as their Lord and Savior and realize their dependence and need for you. And that if they do, God, that they would have the courage to share that. Heaven celebrates and rejoices for each person who does. And we want to celebrate your honor.